Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Insert some new dumb joke here each week and now you all laugh. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, they sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you from my home office in Concord, North Carolina. It is Tuesday night, and I am leaving for one full week in New Orleans. Yeah, one full week at the IPCPR right in New Orleans on the French Quarter. So, for tonight's show, uh, because of the schedule, we are going to jumble it up a little bit, and there won't be any pipe parts. We'll jump right into Michael Lindner. My guest tonight is Michael Lindner, and he's got some news for us, and I got a list of notes, two pages long to get through with him, so we'll see how we do on that. Uh, Music tonight. Because I'm going to New Orleans, the next couple of shows I'm in a New Orleans jazz mood, and I've picked out uh, picked out some New Orleans jazz music for you tonight. Uh, try to get into some mailbag and a rant. All that coming up on tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. All right, so uh, what will I be doing at the IPCPR? Well, here's the basics of my schedule. So tomorrow, fly there, get there, get unpacked. Stand, sounds like a standard standard trip, right? The problem is, uh, it's a seven night trip, and the first two days, Thursday and Friday, are inside of a partially air conditioned convention center, setting up and uh, getting our booth ready for the trade show. So I've got to bring clothes to work in, and then Friday night starts the dinners. Saturday the show opens, and the show's from nine thirty to five all day. Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, and dinners afterwards. So I'll be spending some time cruising around the French Quarter in a lovely, hot, and humid July of New Orleans. So I've got to bring clothes for the evenings, and then on uh, yeah, that gets us up to Tuesday where the show's a half day, and then. Got to go change and get into grubbies and get ready to pack the booth up. So at the end of it, it's a long seven days that goes by super fast. And again, the IPCPR is about 90% premium cigars and cigar accessories. And most of us large uh, pipe tobacco companies are there. And uh, do get a chance to hang out with some friends and definitely get a chance to get some really good food. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping to be able to get out and uh, hear some good music. So... All that, uh, all that coming up for me next week. Uh, next Tuesday night, there will be an episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. It will be completely pre-recorded, and then the week after, I'll tell you all about the trip and uh, get you caught up to speed on what's been going on. All right, everybody, that's what I got for you. So we'll get Michael on the phone here in just a minute. In the meantime, sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you to the McBaron Tobacco Company, and here we go. This is Internet Radio. 
Meet Aaron, one of the most important people at SmokingPipes.com. In our shipping department, he's one of the cogs in the highly efficient wheel, if you will, that's responsible for making sure your order goes out right every time. Ain't that right, Aaron? I don't know all about that cog in the wheel stuff, but I do know at SmokingPipes.com, I take my work very seriously. Pulling tents of tobacco, weighing bulk tobacco, triple checking orders, and getting them out the door. Since it's so easy to order from SmokingPipes.com, you're keeping Aaron pretty darn busy. Look at him go, go, go. <laughs> In fact, it's been a challenge to get him to stop long enough to say hello. But Aaron doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why is that, Aaron? Because I don't just ship pipes. I smoke them. Gotta run. <laughs> just log on to SmokingPipes.com or call us at 1-888-366-0345. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com. There's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe. An American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. And as I promised, joining me on the telephone with a whole bunch of big news and uh, and exciting stuff coming up for you but please welcome michael lindner to the pipes magazine radio show thank you very much i'm pleased to be here all right so we've known each other since we were uh, both young guys in the uh, in the business at the pipe shows chasing around the old timers um now we're no longer the young guys anymore but tell everybody when did you when did you first get involved with pipe smoking and pipe making well, it's, that started actually, I started as a collector, and I kind of fell into collecting. Uh, in, it would have been the summer of 1994, so I would have been about 24 years old. Um, and uh, I was out with a friend of mine. Uh, we were just hanging out, driving around, and there was an estate sale, and uh, he happens to like going to estate sales, and I was game for whatever, so we swung in there, and when we were there, uh, there was, there were things at the, at the estate sale that were things you would only see in its back, like uh, large display cases, and so on and so forth, and, and at the time, I had smoked cigars, I had smoked cigars since I was about 18 years old, uh, and he was a little curious about why they would have these huge display cabinets, so we went and inquired. And come to find out, the estate sale was for uh, an elderly couple that had passed away, and they, they had, uh, in the 1960s, owned a tobacconist in downtown Detroit. And they asked if we wanted to see the pipes. So we were led down into the basement, and there were numerous boxes uh, filled with basically all the inventory from the store that has, they had taken out when they closed down in 1968. And Don was the pipe guy. Um, so Don started going through boxes and uh, started pulling some things out and setting things aside and so on and so forth. And uh, asked me if I had any cash on me because <laughs> Don was notoriously uh, broke. And I, uh, we, we, we kind of pulled our money and came up with about 100 bucks. And uh, Don offered to buy some pipes from them. And bear in mind, I didn't know anything about pipes at the time. So... I handed over the money, and I'm like, well, you know, you have to pay me back tomorrow. And he said that was fine. So we left with some boxes, 
and got back to his house, and when I opened up the trays, they were pipe trays that held 12 pipes each, uh, there were, it was, it was love at first sight. I had never seen anything quite so beautiful. They were like little jewels, and uh, it, it just so happens that what he had pulled out of these boxes and what we had purchased were unsmoked Sassini four dots. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's that's how I got into pipes because I, I took a look at these and I just fell in love. And I said, you know, here's here's the thing, Don. You would not have been able to do this deal without my money, right? And he said, yep. And I said, so how about you don't pay me back, but instead I pick out six pipes. And, and there was about 45 pipes there, 40 or 45, something like that. And uh, he was okay with that, and I said, but I get to pick them out. So I picked out the four, or, or I think maybe six pipes that I that I had wanted. Um, and most of them were Sassini Four Dots, and there were a couple Savinelli Punta Oros, old ones, uh, silver mounts that had the old four digits, so they were pre-1960 or so. Um, probably had been sitting around in the shop for quite a while. And that's how I got into pipes, was, uh, was six fantastic old unsmoked Sassinis and Savinelli's. <laughs> and so uh, Don had a couple of friends that smoked pipes. He smoked pipes. They kind of got me going, but I, I didn't really fall in love with pipes. I still liked my cigars much better um, until I discovered Balkan Sobrani, which would have been 1997, and that just happens to be about the same time that I discovered uh, All Smokers Pipes, which was a news group online. And um, I happened to know where there was a lot of Balkan uh, Sobrani because it had been, I, I guess it had stopped being imported into the U.S. in about 1995 or so. And there was a, a shop here in, in, in Detroit that still had quite a bit. And so I went and I was buying some and reselling it to people that were on ASP. And I decided to open one of the packages up, and I fell in love all over again. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon I found myself wanting to buy more pipes. I started buying pipes on eBay. This is back when the entire tobacconist section on eBay was two pages. So, yeah, it was pretty easy to go through eBay because there really wasn't much going on there. But I started buying up pipes there and cleaning them up and restoring them and selling them, and that kind of ended up becoming more than a hobby uh, in uh, sometime late in 1997. And so that's when I opened the Pipe Rack, uh, which was, at the time, one of the first Internet retailers that was actually not just it was designed as a business and not necessarily as a hobbyist. Uh, there were plenty of pages that were run sporadically by collectors who would post things that they didn't want to smoke anymore. But I saw it as a, a growing hobby at the time. Um, and so I started buying and selling on a fairly regular basis. So when did the, how long did it take for the pipe rack? I mean, really the first, you know, the first real online estate business for pipes. When did it take, when did it finally start to take off? It was. It started to really take off, probably 1998 or so. But by 1999, I had it. It had turned into a full-time job. Um, Barry Levin had been really the king of estate pipes, uh, and 
I took the basic model of that, which was regular updates and having things in restored condition and noting discrepancies in condition and things like that and applied it to an online site. Uh, I don't remember when Barry had passed away. I think it was 1996 or 1997. But I think that at the time, there was an opportunity there, new technology coming in, uh, to take the basic idea of what used to be the way things were done, which was pipe mailers, um, and apply it to an online forum uh, format. And so that's what I did. And it was gangbusters. Uh, by 2000 or 2001, um, there was uh, some other sites. I mean, but really it was, it was basically the pipe rack, and uh, there was another one out of Knoxville, Tennessee, I don't remember, um, that's long gone now. I, maybe it was Knox Cigar, actually, now that I think about it. And then Smoking Pipes had started to, to uh, I think they started around 2001. And so we were kind of the forerunners of everything that came after that. When did you start making your own pipes? I started making my own pipes in July of 2000. And that was really an offshoot of... It, it, I kind of, I, I kind of like to say that I became an accidental pipe maker. Um, at the time, there was, I wanted to do my own restorations, and I had been doing my own restorations. But part of what I wanted to offer was stem replacement, and Jimmy Cook, up to that point, had been pretty much the only guy that was doing things at a certain level of quality, uh, very high quality, uh, very much in demand, and. He had gotten to the point where he was so backlogged that he said he wasn't going to do it anymore. And I said, you know, here's an opportunity. So I went about buying the equipment that I would need to be able to do replacement stems, in addition to the the other things that I was doing, like full restorations and so on and so forth. Um, and that included a lathe and a bandsaw and some other various things. And, and Mark Tinsky helped me out with a lot of that. Uh, things to buy, ways to get a set up so on and so forth. And he was also supplying me with some materials that I needed. And just on a whim, I said, Mark, why don't you send me a block of briar or two? And I, I can't really tell you why I said that. But when his package showed up and I opened it up and I took a look at the wood, I just saw the pipe inside. It just, it, it all clicked all at once. And I, I looked at the grain. And I mean, by this time, I had probably, as a collector, I had had probably a thousand pipes through my hand and as a retailer I'd had a, at least that many through my hands and I I understood grain orientation I understood what made a good pipe um, and I saw the pipe in the wood and I said I'm gonna give this a shot and so having pretty much all the equipment that I needed as far as a lathe and a bandsaw and a belt sander and you know various hand tools and things I decided to give a go at it, and that would have been, like I said, July 2000, and I posted some photos up on an online forum on Alt Smokers Pipes, and the response I got was kind of amazing, um, very surprising. I, I wasn't expecting people to be that enthusiastic about what I was doing, but I mean, my, the first pipe that I made in 2000 was uh, hand-shaped, it had a hand-cut rindle stem on it. Uh, and people were 
pretty excited about it. Uh, I think I was offered $300 for the first pipe. I, I turned it down. I didn't feel that it was, I didn't feel I was ready to be selling. In fact, I still have that first pipe. I have probably four or five of the first ten pipes that I made. Uh, many I gave away for gifts uh, as, as I was learning what I was doing. But by the end of 2000, um, I felt that I was doing it right enough that I could go ahead and sell. And so starting, I believe, might have been the Richmond show, so that would have been October of 2000. I had sold some pieces there, and then I sold some online here and there. But really, the first show where I was fully represented, where I went to a show as a pipe maker, was 2001, and that would have been Chicago. And uh, I went with 25 pipes, so I came home with two, I think. To prove that Michael is kind of old school, first of all, you referred to the brindle stem, which most people would call it Cumberland, but brindle is the proper name for it and you came up the old way of first learning how to restore and work on pipes and and do stuff before you decided that you were going to take a shot at making a pipe certainly and and you'll find that 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 basic idea plays out a lot with many of the pipe makers that are in my generation my age group uh guys that can like this is how jody started jody yeah. davis uh, Jody started by buying pipes at antique stores and restoring them, and then the curiosity took over, and he started to learn how to make pipes. Uh, that's also the way uh, Nate King started. He started doing restorations, buying and selling pipes on eBay and restoring them, and, and said, you know, there's there's something to this, and I'd like to learn more. Nate is interesting because he comes from a machinist background. He comes from a mechanical background, and so it was very easy for him to transition into something like that. Whereas for me... And also for Jody, too, we didn't really know what we were doing. I, I had never worked with a lathe. I had never worked with wood. Uh, this, was, this was all new for me. And uh, it was interesting. That, that, that some of the things that, that went on in 2000 and 2001, the attitude that I kind of got from other guys that had been doing this for a long time, uh, there were some pipe makers that were kind of mad, actually, uh, that this young kid came in and bought a lathe and started making pipes and started selling pipes for $400, $500 when they had been struggling along for 15 years trying to sell pipes for 150 uh, We're going to take a break right here when we come back. We're going to talk about the, the early days of that. And if you don't mind, I want to keep you on a little bit longer than uh, than we talked about. So... Stay with us. We'll be back with more from Michael in just a minute. Signore, signore, scusi per favore, but what is that intoxicating and delicious aroma coming from your pipe? Oh, uh, this is Molto Dolce, my all-time favorite blend from Sutliff Tobacco. Do you like it? I found it on SutliffMoltoDolce.com. Do you mind if I try? Oh, signore, this truly is Molto Dolce. So charming that you even speak my language as it is truly very sweet. <laughs> just like you, I am sure. I can just taste the warm caramel and sweet dripping honey gushing through my mouth. 
Oh, and even better, the rich vanilla flavor plays so well with the other tastes over my tongue. It is like they are all having a giant playful pillow fight on smooth and silky sheets of tobacco in my mouth. Pure heaven! Mi piace moltissimo, mi amore. Can't you see it, signore? I can see it. I can see it. And signore, best of all, no tongue bite. Grazie un milione for the pipe, signore. Hey! Sightlife Tobacco Company will not be held responsible for any loss of one's favorite pipe customers may experience when smoking our delicious Balto Dolce blend in public. Hi, my name is Eileen Sachi from MarketingPipes.com. If you attend the major pipe shows or buy pipes on eBay, chances are you know my dad, Hank Sachi, or eBuyer1932. My dad has been a pipe collector for over three decades and a reseller on eBay for the last 12 years. His new website is MarketingPipes.com. At MarketingPipes.com, you will find high-quality, hand-picked pipes. Carvers, join my dad's vast network of collectors across the globe and let my dad promote your brand. Collectors, consign your pipes at affordable commissions or buy your next collectible pipe at MarketingPipes.com. Thank you. We are back visiting with Michael, and we got a lot to get through, plus some exciting news that I'm going to save towards the end of it. But before the break, you said that you were getting, you got some resistance or some strange, uh, some strange looks from the old time pipe makers. Um, what was it? I mean, what was it like those first couple of pipe shows and coming out as a pipe maker versus some of these guys that have been around for a while? It was interesting. Uh, I was not expecting the, uh, if you want to call it the lashback, uh, that, that I had received from some, some of the other guys. Um, and, and first off, I would like to say that that was not universal. There were, there were plenty of, of pipe makers out there that really wanted to see something exciting happen. Uh, uh, and, and Jimmy Cook pops into my mind immediately as someone who was, Absolutely fascinated with the idea that there was there seemed to be a, a renaissance of pipe carving in the U.S. Uh, because at the time it was basically as far as the, the young guns that were coming out, it was me, it was Jody, and it was Todd, and we were all pretty much started making pipes within six to twelve months of each other. And uh, uh, Jimmy Cook had worked with Jody for uh, quite a bit of time. Jody went and visited him, saw how the shop was laid out, things like that. Um, and, and Jimmy was, was very encouraging and took a lot of time with me, talking to me about basic ideas, uh, explained the basics, I mean, just the, the absolute basics, like using a two-jaw chuck with pivots uh, in order to line up your airways and things like that. And uh, Trevor Talbert also, who had started carving, I think, in 1998, he and I became friends around that time, and he was very helpful in uh, suggesting ways to get tool bits ground and what the best sources for long drill bits or whatever other little things I might need. You know, he said, yeah, call these people, or hey, take a look at this catalog or whatever. Um, but there were guys out there who until they realized that they, I think that what happened was they said at first, well, Michael's overpriced, and that's, that's bullshit. <laughs> and then they realized that they were underpriced. And they realized that their limited scope 
had really changed as the pipe smoking community has changed, and they saw an opportunity as well. And some of these guys have gone on uh, to really advance in not only in their own pipe making, uh, but also in their market share and where they were being sold. Uh, some took the opportunity and said, you know what, I can sell in Japan because some of these young guys are selling in Japan. And it really changed their business model um, overall because I think that they saw what was going on. And so the resistance that first had occurred in, say, 2000, 2001 was pretty much gone by 2002 because people said, first off, some of these new guys are raising the bar for the rest of us. You know, for example, me and Jody and some of the others were insisting on doing hand-cut stems, like from the get-go. And so a lot of guys that had been doing pre-molded stems said, well, we better improve our game. And so they did, and they started doing hand-cut stems. So they started doing more innovative shapes. And what basically happened is that everybody got better in the U.S. Between the years of 2001 and 2004, I think that there was a, a real growth spurt in what America was producing. And at the time, really the Danes were the leaders in the world. Uh, Uptowns was selling $15,000 Bo Nords and... Uh, they were uh, they they had really taken a lot of time to market brands like S Bang, uh, Yes Konovitz, uh, and people like Jody and I. We looked at that and we said we want to be in that league, and we're nowhere near that, and we need to do a lot of work to get there. And so we tried, and and that's the thing is that you know you you try and sometimes you fail and sometimes you succeed and you build on the successes and you learn from the failures and you get better and it takes a little while here and there um, but it was it was a fascinating and fun time in the business uh, I got to spend a lot of time um, with Jody uh, starting 2004 2005 2006 uh, he and I worked together quite often in his shop in Yuma Arizona and we really started to understand the concept of that what the Danes had known all along, which was there really shouldn't be any secrets. No one benefits from secrets. So we started to collaborate on ideas, um, not necessarily influencing what the other person was doing as far as strict design, but looking at the way that we each make pipes, because every pipe maker makes pipes differently. You can put two pipe makers in the same shop with the same tools and they will figure out two completely different ways to do the same thing. And it was uh, really an, an energizing time for, for both of us, I think. I, I can't really speak for him, but I can speak for myself, certainly, that it was, it was a fascinating time to be making pipes, to be working alongside with someone who was a peer uh, discovering new ways of doing things, and, and it was a lot of fun. Let's say uh, I, I definitely uh, I, I want to completely agree with you about the the early ages of the pipe shows because I started hitting the pipe show circuit in two thousand two thousand one and two, and I got resistance. It was it seems to me like it was a much less uh, a, a much less open group of people than it is now. 
um, in the past, I mean, 15 years, you've seen a ton of changes in in the pipe shows and in the pipe world. Is there is there anything in particular that stands out that surprised you? I think that if there was anything that surprised me more than more than everything else, it would probably be just how many pipe makers seem to come out of the woodwork. I mean, just like it was, there was, there was a time frame there between 2002 and 2007 or 2008, and it still is continuing on today, where you would go to a show and there seemed to be five new pipe makers, five, maybe six, maybe ten, depending on the size of the show. Uh, everybody wanted to start learning how to make pipes. And some were very good. Uh, some were, were not at all. And you could see where some people were progressing more rapidly than others. And I think of, uh, like, Adam Davidson and uh, Adam Remington and uh, Jeff Grasick, for sure. Uh, these were guys that started... Uh, and really, I think, took a very professional attitude about their improvement uh, and wanted, more than anything else, to be the best that they could possibly be. And they are still here. And there's a lot of people out there that made pipes for three or four pipe shows, maybe a couple of years, and then realized they weren't going to get rich doing this. Uh, and and dropped out, um, and and I think that there's this there's this fallacy uh, of opinion in the pipe community, both as makers and as collectors, that pipe makers are rich. <laughs> We're not, like, not even close. To even the most even the most successful pipe makers out there, uh, they still it, it's it's work, and you. You struggle sometimes, and there there are times where you look at things and you go, you know, I could go get a day job. I really could. Um, I could go be doing something else for sixty grand a year or eighty grand a year, and I'm not. I'm sitting here in front of my lathe on my second or third or fourth piece of briar for the day because you know what? Sometimes the briar gods don't agree with you, and you're frustrated and you're fed up, and you look at things, and you're like, that's it, I'm done. Um, but then the next day you get up, and you go back, and you make something beautiful, and you look at it, and you go, I, I wouldn't want to do anything else ever. This is this is what I'm meant, I'm meant to, to be doing, and this is what makes me happy. Um, so the, the basic idea that, that I, I think that the guys that have stuck with it and the ones that have continuously improved, I can't speak for everyone, but I think that most of those guys look at this and go, this is what I love to do. And they're not interested, or maybe they're not primarily motivated by the dollar signs. They're motivated by being an artist or being an artisan or whatever you want to call it. And they're, they're motivated by making people happy. And that's one of the most important things of what we do as pipe makers, I think, is make people happy. That's the, for me, that's my primary motivation, 
is the idea that at the end of a long day, someone is going to come home and they're going to kick their feet up and they're going to pour themselves a bourbon and they're going to take one of my pipes off the rack and they're going to pack it and smoke it and they're going to relax. And my pipe becomes one of their friends almost. I mean, I certainly know from my years in collecting that I had my favorite pipes and I didn't want to be without them. I took them everywhere with me. And so as I got into pipe making, that was the goal. The goal was to be to be at a certain level in my craft that people wanted to have my pipes with them at all times because they saw them as friends. And so bringing joy to the collector, that really is my motivation. I mean, the money's nice, but again, I don't know a lot of pipe makers that are that are wealthy. I, you know, we we all have to manage our money and we all have to pay our bills and we all have to do the things that anyone would have to do no matter what job we have. And, and there are times that I sit there and I go, yeah, I could be making a, a, a lot more money working in the public sector or working uh, for some private consulting firm or something like that. But at the end of the day, I love my job and I wouldn't want to do anything else. You've always had the pipe rack as another business. You've always had something else uh, going on while you've been a full-time almost a full-time pipe maker and that you know that does that affords you the basics to eat and then the time to kind of enjoy making a pipe um it it definitely has afforded me uh some opportunities that i know that a lot of other pipe makers haven't had and yes i i have even though the pipe rack i haven't really been paying much attention to for the past couple of years as i've been focusing on other things um that was something that did help, but what it really truly allowed me to do was continue making pipes at all. Uh, there, there were some, there were some lean times for many years, and you know, as I was learning what I was doing and as I was getting established, where if I hadn't had some second stream of income, uh, it would have been disastrous because there's no way I could have survived just on what I earned making pipes. Uh, and for a lot of pipe makers today, that second stream of income, like frankly, making the pipes is the second stream of income. They're part-time pipe makers. They have a full-time job as an electrician or as uh, a small business owner or who knows what, whatever else it is that they do. And they make pipes because they love it and because they earn a little bit of extra money and it helps pay the bills. But they really want to at some point get into a situation where they can just make pipes full-time. And uh, I think that's what we all strive for. And it, it took me a little while to do that. I mean, at some point, I can't really remember when, uh, but probably eight or nine years ago, the pipe rack was something that helped, but really I, I, had, I had gotten to the point where I could pay my bills with what I was doing with making pipes. And so uh, for, for a long period of time there with the pipe rack, I had, I had employees. I had people that ran that, and I didn't even take a paycheck out of the pipe rack. I just reinvested all that money back into the company so that we could have more state pipes and so that we could hire more people and so that everybody that worked for me could have a comfortable living. And now, you know, we'll see what happens. I... I really enjoy the estate pipe side of things. 
I probably enjoy it as much as making pipes. It's different, uh, but you connect with a different type of collector. You connect with a different uh, set of skills. Uh, and I like feeling like there's diversity in what I do from day to day. Uh, sometimes it gets a little monotonous to just make pipes and, and uh, to have a break where you can go, you know what, I'm going to play with some estate pipes. I'm going to look at some old Dunhills. I'm going to uh, restore this uh, old Sixton Iverson pipe. It's, it's a nice change of pace from just sitting in front of the lathe or hand sanding or sandblasting. So I like that diversity. Real quickly before we take another break, uh, when you look, when you look at a brand new pipe maker, is there is what's the first thing you look at to see if you think they're on the right track or you think they've got it? There's a couple things generally. Uh, one is I'm looking for hand cut stems. I'm looking for someone who's taking the time to to learn how to do that. And uh, I think the second thing is. I'm looking for people who are working in what I would call batch production, which means that they understand there's a certain efficiency that comes from, say, uh, shaping five bowls at once, uh, shaping five of the same shape all at once, fitting five stems at once, finishing five pipes at once. Um, I I look at that kind of efficiency and I say, okay, this person understands that um, there are certain things that can be done uh, in in group or in batch and and they value their time and they're trying to do things, I suppose, what I would call the right way. but there are other smaller details, you know. There's I mean, that; those are the two big things. Uh, and there are certain things like when it comes to um, making five pipes all at the same time, or ten, or fifteen, or twenty, or whatever, where that's just impractical. It's uh, there are certain shapes that you can do, and certain shapes you can't do like that. Um, but generally speaking, if I'm looking uh, for anything it's, it's going to be that kind of stuff and I suppose it should be noted too that that one other thing that is I consider to be a critical and it, it's so critical that I didn't even really think about it because it's it, it's obvious to me but it, it probably isn't obvious to everyone is that there's a lot of guys out there who like to make artistic flowy shapes and they want to do some fancy stuff and they're really good at it but they could not make a billiard if someone pointed a gun at their head. <laughs> and people that are exploring the classics and learning the classics and appreciating uh, what had been done for 150 years prior to when they decided to make pipes, I think that that's very, very important because it's the classics that everything else are based on. I mean, whether you look at shape or you look at engineering or you look at uh, you know, any aspect, smokeability, um, it's really easy to make something pretty. It's not necessarily so easy to make something that's properly engineered that's going to smoke well for 50, 60, 80 years. I've had pipes in my collection that are 120 years old, and I still can smoke them every single day because they were engineered properly. So yeah. 
I think that those three things right there, that's probably what I look for the most. First time I've ever heard it of you know, suggesting working in batches, but it makes sense. It's all muscle memory, and if you're doing that same process over and over again, you you, know, you don't have to shift gears mentally when you're shifting from one process to the other. That is exactly why I suggest batch processing for, for so much of, of what we do, because there are some things that can be, I mean, it's, it's human automation, but it is automation, and it is muscle memory, and it is uh, allowing your mind to settle into a basic shape. Uh, if you try and make five identical billiards, um, and, and this is relevant for somebody who's maybe doing pipes for uh, for a pipe club, uh, like Kansas City just had, uh, you know, they do an annual uh, pipe for their members, and um, they had Joe Hinkle do uh, a Lavat uh, this year, and uh, I watched as Joe did. Lavat after Lavat after Lavat, and I can tell you by the third or fourth one for that day, he was he was able to execute those perfectly. And Joe's been making pipes about a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, but that kind of practice uh, really helps in the long run uh, in developing the way that your mind needs to wrap itself around a shape. And so, you know, if you're going to do five billiards, do five billiards all on the same day. Um, I can guarantee you by the end of the day, you're going to know that shape inside and out. Joe Hinkle brings up Briar Lab, which we're going to talk about right after this break. So stay with us. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell and Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell and Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenay's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell and Deal's Cellar Series. The secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information. Do you need a reliable source for ordering pipes and tobacco? Do you find it difficult to get your favourite blends outside of the US? Fournoggins.com stocks all of your favourite pipes and tobaccos and ships all over the world. All forms of payment are accepted and orders are processed the same day. There are no worries when ordering from Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com is your source for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. We ship in the US and international with no worries. Fournoggins.com for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. This is Internet Radio. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and as I mentioned, Briar Lab is your newest venture. Tell us all about it. Briar Lab is uh, it's pretty exciting for me, and it is the, uh, the culmination of a couple of years of work between Nate King and myself. Uh, and, and also something that I've wanted to do ever since I 
spent my time working next to Joby uh, when when I lived in L.A. and he lived in Yuma, and we would get together once a month and, and make pipes together. And the basic idea of it is a collaborative studio. Um, the uh, the collaborative studio is is one where we each do our own thing, but we share information, we share ideas, uh, we critique each other's work, uh, and we, we're not necessarily collaborating on shapes, we're collaborating on ideas. Um, and so the conversation with Nate started in, gosh, it would have been November or December of 2013. Uh, maybe a little bit before that. We may have chatted at a pipe show prior to that um, about the basic idea. And at the time, I lived in the Detroit area. He was in Indianapolis. And I wanted to move out of state. I had I had kind of a... Michigan had worn out its welcome for me. And, and I was I was ready for someplace new. And uh, in conversations with Nate, uh, I w- I, first off, I, I think he's a fantastic pipe maker. Uh, I think that he is... Uh, incredibly talented and I, I don't think he's even aware of just how good he can be. Uh, it's fun to watch him work and uh, and he does things completely different than I do. There's, there's, uh, there's very little overlap in how he and I make pipes so there's a lot there to lean information back and forth and so in our conversations, it was like, you know, let's let's think about getting a shop together. And then it was like, well, you know, I'm I needed to figure out how I was going to move out of Michigan, and and that took some time. And the uh, the idea of the shop, the collaborative studio, grew from okay, let's find some place that's 700 square feet to let's find some place that's around a thousand to let's find some place that's larger, and so on and so forth. Until by the time uh, he ended up signing a lease someplace. And bear in mind, he did all of this on good faith that I was actually going to show up with my equipment. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he, I got to tell you, he, uh, he took a leap of faith that I was actually going to do what I said I was going to do. Uh, by the time he signed a lease at, at, uh, at the studio that we have now, it, it, it was almost a 2,000-square-foot facility and included office and, uh, you know, a nice front area that we could turn into a lounge. And and he had already talked to other pipe makers, uh, and notably Joe Hinkle, who I had earlier mentioned, about joining this collaborative studio. And so I moved all my stuff down from Michigan, uh, and we basically got the keys December 1st of 2014. Uh, we were operational. Uh, somewhere around January 15th, uh, we built everything from the ground up, building uh, the uh, workbenches and getting the electrical taken care of and uh, arranging the, the shop space the way that we wanted it. And it really was a collaborative effort, not only in what we do and how we make pipes, but also in how the space was designed from the very beginning. And we realized that there was something special that we could do. We could offer a place where more people could come and work and enjoy the knowledge that I had and enjoy the knowledge that Nate had and the experience that we had both uh, accumulated over the years. 
And so when it was all said and done, you know, the, the, it just it kind of grew and grew and grew, and we went, oh, my gosh, this, this space is amazing. Um, we decided to uh, put in more equipment than we possibly could need with the idea that pipe makers would be coming to, to work there. And that's what's happened. Uh, we have attracted other pipe makers from the Midwest to uh, come and sign up to be part of uh, Briar Lab. And uh, we expect there will be more. Uh, there's, there's a tremendous amount of interest in what's going on. Um, and there's a lot of new guys that are, that are getting into pipe making, and they're good. Uh, and some of these people... They already have a home. They're already working with Premel, uh in uh, in Columbus. Uh, many of them have moved down to Nashville. But there's there are so many Brian. There are so many new pipe makers out there, and there are so many guys that want to come and learn new ways of doing things and see different ways of doing things and share their own knowledge. And it's a really exciting project. Um, but what really is fascinating for me and, and fun for me about about Briar Lab is the fact that this is also a space for collectors to come. Collectors can come and see how pipes are made. Uh, they can even, um, we're looking at packages where we can offer pipe uh, collectors the opportunity to come and be part of the process of the making of their pipe. And that's a little ways off, but there's a number of packages that we have for both pipe makers to come and share their space and for collectors to come and be part of the process as well. But more importantly than making pipes there, what we really want to do is make better pipe makers. That's, that really is the, the uh, motivator for everything that we do. The question that we ask ourselves whenever we're stuck with a, with a problem is, does this make better pipe makers? Does this make pipe makers more money? Does it help them feed their family? If the answer is yes, that's something we pursue. And if the answer is no, that's something that we discard. And so Briar Lab is more than just the studio. It's also uh, a website that pipe makers that are part of the studio can uh, sell their pipes to a wide audience um, we offer the opportunity for pipe makers to learn how to do their own marketing, uh, to learn the best ways to set up their business. But we understand that there's a lot of pipe makers out there who don't want to do that. They want to just make pipes. These are the guys that are, you know, they, their day job is they're an electrician. Uh, the last thing they want to do is figure out how the best way to photograph their pipes are. and deal with uh, shipping the pipes out to uh, Japan, for example, uh, and they don't know the first thing about web design, and they don't want to learn anything about web design. All they want to do is make pipes, and we give them that opportunity because we can take anything that they make, and if they're part of the Briar Lab, they'll go on our website, and they'll be sold through our website, and they'll have a worldwide audience. And so it, it really is kind of a it's it's kind of a pipe maker's playground. That's that's the best way that we can put it. And and we're very excited about uh, what's just right around the corner here. 
uh, coming up July 25th, which is a Saturday, we will be having the Briar Lab Open House. And this is our first annual open house. It's open to pipe makers and collectors alike. We have uh, a wide variety of door prizes that we will be uh, giving away throughout the day. Uh, there's going to be uh, demonstrations of the shop, uh, the equipment there. There probably could be some spontaneous collaboration of pipe making, depending on who comes and who wants to play. <laughs> uh, we're going to have uh, fantastic food, uh, some briar smoked ribs and pork shoulder, and uh, there's going to be beer and wine there, and it's going to be a fantastic time for everyone involved. And so that's... Uh, I think it is starting right around 3 p.m. and probably going well into the early morning hours. So if you're anywhere around Indianapolis or can get there, that's going to be the place to be on uh, on that Saturday. I think it, it is, yes. And the great thing about Indianapolis, um, besides the fact that it's a fantastic town, is that we're just three hours from a lot of major cities. We're three hours south of Chicago, three hours uh, west of Columbus, four hours east of St. Louis. We're about four hours from Nashville. It's really centrally located for anyone in the Midwest who wants to come and see what's going on at the lab. Uh, and the door prices that we have are, we're, we're kind of pulling out all the stops and uh, there will be pipes that will be uh, part of the door prices, including a linear pipe. Uh, there's going to be cigars, there's going to be tins of tobacco, uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, various other goodies. I don't want to get into all the, all the, I don't want to give it all away, but there's, there's going to be some fantastic door prizes available. So, you know, anyone who comes has a chance to walk, uh, out of there with, uh, a new pipe, uh, tins of tobacco, maybe, uh, Maybe some Briar Lab swag. We're going to have some T-shirts there, and we're also going to be making some announcements uh, during the open house about some of the future things going on with Briar Lab. And uh, I'm going to keep that under wraps. That's 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 available just for the people that are coming uh, to uh, have first dibs at some opportunities. So I do hope that uh, anyone that's in the Midwest will consider attending. Uh, we are currently looking at uh, having some blocks of rooms at some hotels in the area uh, blocked off at special prices. For information on the open house or anything with Briar Lab, the website is briarlab.com. There's a Facebook page, a Twitter page, and the email address is info, I-N-F-O, at briar, B-R-I-A-R-L-A-B dot Tom, Michael, nobody gets away without getting the Fast Five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer. Are you ready? I am ready, sir. What's your favorite pipe? <laughs> uh, I would say um, that my favorite current pipe that I'm smoking is uh, probably one of my own uh, that I gifted to myself at the Kansas City Pipe Show. It's a... Uh, a spider-grade ring-blasted Dublin with a horn inlay. Love that thing. It's smoking great. What's your favorite tobacco? Oh, without without a doubt, it would be a Scudo. Uh, I've been smoking... I, I pretty much gravitated from English into Virginia about 10 years ago and haven't really looked back. What's your favorite drink? 
Well, that's a good one. I would. There is a new. It's new for us. Uh, something that we just got in at the lab uh, from a local store. It's called Bastille, as in storming the Bastille, and it is a French oak cask whiskey that is phenomenal. When it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? I, I don't really have time to relax. <laughs> um, <laughs> about, I would say that I, I get about somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour, uh, a couple of days a week, to, to just kind of unplug in front of the TV. Uh, we are currently in the process of watching through the series uh, Mad Men. So that I would say that if between those three choices, it would probably be movies because that's all I have time for right now is is uh, sitting in front of uh, the TV until I fall asleep. So, last question is probably the hardest. Uh, any particular favorite uh, pipe smoking memory that we haven't talked about? Hmm, that's a tough one. Yeah, you don't ask the easy questions, do you? No, um, they were all easy up to this point. Um, yeah, these are the fun ones. I think my favorite pipe smoking memory that I have comes from the Chicago Pipe Show. Uh, this was shortly after they moved to Pheasant Run. Um, and you could still smoke inside. You could smoke around the bar. And there was one evening where uh, myself and uh, the pipe drive crew and a number of collectors and friends were all gathered around and, you know, Tom Eltang was there and uh, Teddy Newton was there and uh, I don't think Jody was there, but there was, there was uh, just a fantastic group of people just assembled around and popping a tin of old uh, John Cotton number one and two uh, probably from the 1950s, it was a it was an old cutter top, uh, eight ounce, and passing that around, and then following that up with uh, a tin of three year matured that dated to 1956, I think. Uh, popping that shortly after that and passing that around, and then someone pulling out. Uh, a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle rye and passing that around. And that wow. evening lasted until probably about 3 or 4 in the morning, just sitting and talking about uh, everything that had come before, everything that was still yet to come, and, and uh, that sticks out in my mind that evening in particular. I can see why. So, Michael, thank you very much. Everybody check out Briar Lab. Wish I could be there with you, but... Uh... Time doesn't allow me. Hope it's a great success. We'll uh, see you on the road somewhere. Well, you will be missed, and if you change your mind, by all means, get get your tail out there, okay? You got it. Thanks again. I will, I will talk to you soon, and thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it. We'll be back in just a minute. Craftsmanship. History. Tradition. 
These are the hallmarks of all quality products, from the finest wines bottled in France to the most highly engineered automobiles manufactured in Germany. Denmark has been the one country in the world where craftsmanship, history and tradition have for centuries created the finest pipe tobaccos in the world. Since 1887, the Halberg family have led the pipe tobacco industry through their ownership of Mac Baron Tobacco Company, and they continue to create the most sought-after blends in the world today, just as they did over 100 years ago. Ago. In keeping with their long history of providing the world with the best tobacco on earth, Mac Barron is proud to announce their newest creation, Modern Virginia, as a loose-cut version and a flake version. Bright and dark, rich Virginia tobaccos have been combined with just a hint of burley for strength in this soft and smooth smoke with delicious fruit undertones. As the world leader in flake tobacco production, Mac Barron is sure that this blend will appeal to the true connoisseurs of traditional Virginia flake tobacco as well as those who like their tobaccos on the sweeter side. Enjoy the culmination of centuries of experience by picking up a tin of Modern Virginia from Mac Barron Tobacco Company. Available at fine tobacconists everywhere. There's nothing quite like a good book. Or my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe. An American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. See for yourself at corncobpipe.com. Well, I got through about half the stuff I wanted to ask Michael on my list, so uh, maybe we'll have him come back in a second time. All right, so I'm heading off to New Orleans, been listening to jazz over the weekend, and uh, this one is called Down in New Orleans by Dr. John. And to get a little different Disney reference in there, it's from the Princess and the Frog soundtrack, so here you go. Sugar barons and the cotton king 
Rich people, poor people, all got dreams. Dreams do come true in New Orleans. Let's see, I think it's been just over uh, three years since I was in New Orleans last, and I am really looking forward to getting back and uh, getting to sit down and hear some music. Hope the weather holds out. Hope it's not too hot. All right, we're going to skip the mailbag. We'll save it for the uh, for next week for the pre-recorded show, which I'll be doing uh, tomorrow morning, right before I leave. So <laughs> if you got any comments on tonight's show, get them in quick. If you got any comments at all, Post them on the forums under the radio show or uh, email me, Brian, at PipesMagazine.com. Follow me on Facebook or uh, like the Pipes Magazine radio show on Facebook. All right. Here we go. Travel-related rant time coming up next. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. If you're looking for quality, if you're looking for a variety, and if you're looking for someone with a reputation for nothing but the best, you're looking for cupofjoes.com. CupofJoes.com has hundreds of pipes to choose from and thousands of different pipe tobaccos. CupofJoes.com is also your one-stop shop for Peterson Pipes, their exclusive line of Peterson Kelly Pipes. Check out their remodeled website at CupofJoes.com and be sure to like them on Facebook, CupofJoes.com. Quality products at extraordinary prices. This is Internet Radio. Cowboy. Cowboy. I am a travel pro, and I've talked about all my travels, and you know how how many different places I go to and how often I go. Well, I've been to the Hilton Riverside in New Orleans. I've stayed there twice before. So, when I booked all the rooms for all of us going, I requested one specific room type for me. They have a section of rooms in the back of the hotel that are old two- or three-story tower kind of uh, courtyards, and then they've got the main big tower. I requested to be out in the courtyard. Why? Two reasons. One, you can't smoke in the hotel at all whatsoever. There's no smoking rooms. In fact, there's very few smoking rooms in the city of New Orleans, period. But there are no smoking rooms, so I wanted to be able to get out in the morning and have my smoke with my coffee as fast as possible. 
This ties into reason number two. Reason number two is this is a convention center hotel. The minute that convention empties out or everybody's rushing to get there in the morning, the hotel tower, the big tall tower with all the elevators in it, is always jammed up. It's always a wait to get up the elevator or down the elevator. So I've requested to be out in the little courtyard area where I can just walk down a flight of stairs or take a little elevator, go down and wiggle my way around. Now, I've stayed with Hilton's a lot. I'm a gold member with Hilton. They said these are requests and we can only fulfill them at the time of booking. I said I'm requesting the worst rooms you have. I'm requesting to be out in the old section. And the only other thing I'm requesting is extra hangers in my room. They said, well, the best we can do is we can try to get you taken care of at check-in. No, you can't. You know exactly how many rooms you have. You know who's staying where. And you know that the hotel is filling up full of IPCPR attendees. Well, we'll see what happens. I'll let you know in uh, in two weeks, but you'd think they'd be able to tell where everybody's going to be staying when. Anyway, that's it for the show. Hey, hope you all have a really good uh, two weeks. If I'll try to post some stuff on Facebook for you so you get a glimpse of what the show looks like. I'll uh, try to keep you updated on uh, some of the some of the fun stuff around the show, and then if I uh, see any uh, see or have any good meals or hear any good music, I'll let you know that. Guaranteed, if you're in New Orleans and you want to find me, I will be at Cafe Du Monde at least four or five times having beignets and coffee. So with all that, thank you to Michael Linder. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company. And until next time. Cares about the clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. The weather forecast for New Orleans is... That is warm, huh? Warm? No. This is a setting for London broil.